Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I have something unique I'm going to be sharing with you today, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Before I dive in, first, a shout out to all the women who joined us for the Be the Queen program. Oh my gosh, we're two weeks into the program, and it is off the charts, amazing. So incredible. The transformations are already happening. Love having all you ladies there. And we're going to be launching another one in 2020. So stay tuned for that. And the next opportunity to do something with me is to join me for my spring retreat. You've probably heard me talk about it. I talk about it a lot because I'm super passionate about it. It is the most transformational work I do with people in a short amount of time. Sorry, gentlemen, this one is for the ladies only. And one of the reasons it is for the ladies only is because one of the issues we deal with is the sister wound. And this is a wound that so many of us women have. It's wounds with other women, be it our mother, our own biological sisters, friends, feeling betrayed by women, and really coming together and working together as women at this retreat deeply heals that wound. And that's just one of the things that happens at my signature retreat. So much happens, it's hard to explain in words. But if you're ready for a gigantic leap in terms of your own evolution, your own growth, your own healing, and you want to step into more confidence, more self-acceptance, more clarity. And if you're also one of those people, and I know you probably are because this is the most common quote unquote complaint I hear is you have a lot of awareness, but nothing is changing. And it's getting frustrating because you've done all this work. You have this awareness. You can understand yourself. You can even predict what I'm going to say to people on podcasts, yet your life isn't changing the way you want. Coming to the spring retreat and doing the kind of experiential work really helps with integration so you can see change. Now here's the thing. The early bird discount is over November 30th. So if you want to save $500, you've got to apply by November 30th. You can go to christinehassler.com slash spring dash retreat, or you can email jill at christinehassler.com. But I really encourage you to go and check out the page before you know if you're a yes or a no. Read the testimonials, watch the video from me, and spend some time really feeling into it. A resistance probably will come up because like I said, it's deeply transformational. So there will be a part of your ego that will be like, no, I don't want to do it. And you'll come up with all kinds of reasons like travel, can't afford it, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) I encourage you to put that aside and really listen to a deeper calling for up-leveling and for growth and for healing. So again, christinehasler.com slash spring dash retreat. So like I mentioned, I'm doing something different in this week's Coach's Corner. I'm actually airing an interview I did on something called The Shift Podcast. So The Shift Podcast is a podcast series that was born out of the desire to help people make their shift. It's an audio documentary style seasonal podcast that takes you on a journey of insight, inspiration, and aha moments that are curated to help you shift. And season one of The Shift is focused on gut health and explores all things around digestion, gut health, microbiome, and its link in disease. And my episode in particular was about how emotions affect the gut. And I thought it'd be very valuable to share with you for a couple reasons. Number one, our emotions definitely affect our health, particularly our gut. And number two, to hopefully turn you on to the Shift Podcast. I listened to the entire first season. I loved all the interviews. I thought it was incredibly informative. And the host, Catherine Maslin, does such an incredible job of interviewing some of the best of the best experts and really giving you a lot of helpful information. Because when it comes to gut health, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So you can find the Shift Podcast just by going to wherever you subscribe to podcasts and searching for The Shift Podcast. And I'll also put a link in the show notes to it. All right. So this is going to be a little different because like I said, it's an interview with me. And so you'll hear me introducing myself and sharing a little bit about what I do and how I do what I do and a little bit of my backstory. If you've heard that a million times, just fast forward through that part, (laughs) get to the part that's interesting. And you may find it helpful to listen again, because a lot of times my story resonates with a lot of y'all's story. Before we dive in, I want to thank my sponsor for today, which is BetterHelp. If there's something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. 
BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat or text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Over It and On With It viewers, you get 10% off your first month with discount code over it. Again, 10% off your first month with discount code over it. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash over it. Simply fill out a questionnaire, help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you love. Betterhelp.com slash over it. And now on to Catherine Maslin of The Shift Podcast, interviewing me about gut health and emotional health. Enjoy. My name is Christine Hassler, and I am committed to helping and serving people really get out of their suffering, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual suffering. So I do that as a life coach. I have a master's degree in spiritual psychology, lots of other trainings, best experiences, my life experience. And how do you do that with people? Well, in a lot of ways, it's a different and it's the same <laughs> with every single person. Every single person has a different reason they come to me, you know, a different disappointment or a different struggle in terms of the circumstances. But the root cause of most people's struggles that I work with is the same. Unresolved issues from their past that have created belief systems like I'm not enough, I don't belong, I don't fit in, something's wrong with me. So I, I'm, I'm a bit of like a human detective and I help people put together the puzzle pieces of their life. So the behavior that they're exhibiting in their adult life that they want to change but can't starts to make sense as to why they've had trouble changing it. They start to understand why they're attracting the people they do, the circumstances they do, so on and so forth. And I work with them to go back and heal any unresolved issues that are limiting them from what they truly, really want. You know, my grad school program, we learned that the definition of healing is application of love to the places inside that hurt. So the way that I do it with people is to not, not to go back and analyze it with the mind, but to go back with more of the emotional body, to go back with the heart, to go back with the compassionate adult that we all have inside of us now and go back to those times that were challenging and experience them in a different way and feel feelings that we might have suppressed for years and think about situations that are often difficult to think about so that we don't have to repress them anymore, which repression creates depression and struggle and all kinds of things. So, so I'm really curious to hear like how you've gotten to this point where you're helping people in this way. Um, can you tell me when was the first time that you knew that you wanted to work with people? Well, I think I actually knew it as a little girl, as a little girl, I was very sensitive and very empathetic. Uh, so much so that it actually caused me to go into depression because I felt so much as a child and I would feel people's feelings and feel people's pain. And I had a lot of challenges as a child as well. And I'm sure we'll kind of go back to my story. But really what, when I really knew I wanted to help people was when my life really turned around in my 20s. I had a very rock bottom moment and I discovered personal development and I discovered life coaching and I discovered the mind-body connection. And I started to feel differently inside, both mentally and physically. And then I also really got on my spiritual path. And it was like I ate at a great restaurant and I wanted everybody to be able to go there. You know, when you see a great movie or eat a great restaurant or stay at a great hotel, you're like, everybody has to go here. That's how I felt about personal development. And I, I would rather call it like personal remembering because truly what personal development is, is remembering who we truly are before all the challenging stuff happened in our life. And we form these, these stories about who we're not. What happened in your 20s that triggered all of this? Well, to answer what happened in my 20s, I have to go back to what happened to me as a child to kind of piece it together. So as a kid, I struggled most socially. Most of the, the problems that I had were outside the home. I had my challenges inside the home as well. I think every kid does. I was teased a lot. A bunch of girls in fourth grade passed around a note to everybody telling everybody not to be my friend. And not a big deal looking back at it as an adult, but as a kid, especially a sensitive kid, just feeling like you don't belong and feeling ostracized 
was very challenging. And I was also a super late bloomer. I had different map appliances. I was a target for teasing. And because of that, I developed what I call today compensatory strategy. So whenever we as a kid or young adult have something that happens to us that scares us or makes us feel rejected or makes us feel less than in any way, the ego and the kind of survival mechanism of the brain and personality has to come up with a way to feel safe and to feel loved and to feel more than. So for example, if as a kid, you didn't get a lot of like approval, like your parents were hard on you and that made you feel less than in any way, you might develop a compensatory strategy of people pleasing. Because if you can just like make mom or dad smile or make them feel good, then maybe you get the attention and love and validation. So my compensatory strategy was overachieving since I felt less than growing up and like I didn't belong. I was like, well, I'll be the smartest girl in the class and that will make me somebody. That will make me feel like I have a purpose. So this overachieving thing really was my main driver. Like I became identified with what I did. Much more of a human doing than human being. Lived completely in my head. At age 11 was put on Prozac, was diagnosed with depression, was put on Prozac. And at around the same time, I started getting headaches right in my third eye. So that's the area, you know, between our eyebrows. And so in addition to the Prozac, was on a lot of medication. So Excedrin, you know, which is like aspirin, decongestants. Then I didn't start puberty on time. So I was put on hormones. Then I was put on Accutane. And then I had this terrible mouth appliance that moved my jaw forward. So I had so much trauma to my whole throat and mouth. Like it just, it was, it was, it was a lot for my little body. And again, like, because all that was so challenging, I just kept leaning into, I got to get good grades and I got to be a straight A student and you know, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I leaned in more to the doing, doing, doing. And the one thing in my growing up years that was a highlight was my parents got me into acting classes and it was where no one from my school went. So I could really be anybody there. And acting was so powerful for me because I got to be somebody else, but in being someone else, almost the real me came out. I had so much depression and repression and I had so much anxiety. I had a lot of IBS as a kid, a lot of insomnia and acting was like the kind of the thing where I could just be in another world and like be self-expressed. And so I was actually quite good at it. <laughs> and I got scouted and moved out to LA and, you know, went on audition after audition and it hit my rejection button. So rejection is what I like to call my avoidance trap. So avoidance traps is another term I came up with working with a coach for so many years. People would come to me and tell me all the things they want, but they'd spend way more time and energy avoiding all the things they don't want. So like rejection, failure, loss of control, people not liking them, disappointing people. So those are all avoidance traps that we fall into that keep us from doing what we really want to do because the pain of any of those things stops us from going after what we really want. So anyway, I fell into my avoidance trap of rejection. I thought, I feel like I have no control over acting. I'm going to go behind the camera. Like I can rely on my brain. I know I can be successful. So I went and studied film and I moved out to Los Angeles at 20 and I wanted to be a producer or something like that. And all of this was driven by this massive insecurity and need to prove myself. You know, I had this fantasy of winning, and this is like a 19-year-old fantasy of winning like a Oscar, Golden Globe, and like naming the girls in fourth grade who started that club. It was just this, it came from this place of just really wanting to prove myself and finally feel accepted. And, you know, if you're really insecure and have something to prove, Hollywood is a great place to go and try to do that. So by 25, I was an agent, represented writers, producers, directors, had the life, was dating the head of a movie studio, was going to all the Oscars, Golden Globes, was making a lot of money for a 25-year-old. And I still wasn't happy. It seemed like no matter what box I checked off, nothing was making me feel full inside. Nothing was easing the anxiety. And P.S. by this time, I'm not only on antidepressants still, and I've been on them since 11, but I'm now I'm on Xanax. And I'm still taking aspirin daily. I'm taking Imitrex, which is a migraine medication, at least once a week. Anytime I felt anything, it was what pill can I take? That was my thinking because I didn't really want to feel like anything. Now, I didn't know then what I know now, which is I was really numbing not only my feelings, but my intuition. And I was completely disconnecting from my body, but it was all 
I knew how to do. So there I am at, at 25 at the peak of what would seem like an amazing life for a 25 year old, still not happy, realizing my when thens aren't working out. You know, when I get promoted, then I'll be happy. When I have this boyfriend, then I'll feel good about myself. When this, then that, nothing was working. And so I had basically a mild panic attack one day on the way up the elevator to my office. And I remember sitting outside my office and the, the man who ran the agency I worked at was an art collector. And in my opinion, some of the art was a little weird, especially the art outside of my particular office. So I remember looking at this painting and the painting was a pregnant woman, like nine months pregnant in a negligee, like a see-through negligee, standing in a yard sale that went completely awry, like just junk all over with a UFO ship up above her, shining the spotlight down on her. <laughs> and I just remember like staring at it. I don't know how long I stared at it, but it was a while. And it was that like, that's, I felt like that woman. I felt lost and confused and like pregnant with possibility, but like not doing any, I just, and I was like, I gotta get out of here. Like I am on the wrong path. I don't know what the right path is, but I'm on the wrong path. And so I ended up resigning. People thought I was crazy because I had this great job. You know, I, I, I was really good at, looking like I had it all together. I could like really wear that mask of, I'm good, I've got it all together, I love my life, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I really could fake it. And inside was a completely different picture. So after I quit, I thought I, thought I was gonna go be a health and wellness expert. I was always really into working out. And that quickly turned into just being a personal trainer. And I went into massive amounts of debt. I was estranged from my family for a while because my mom and I got into an argument and she was like, I had a very like close, pretty much a meshed relationship with her. So that was pretty traumatizing. And I was engaged and six months before my wedding, my fiance called it off. So in about eight months, I lost career, money, family, health was oh, on top of the depression and anxiety and headaches. I got diagnosed with an undiagnosable autoimmune disorder and thyroid dysfunction. So People listening have been through far worse, but for me, at, by then it's 26, that was really a rock bottom moment. And the, I was always a doer. I could always control things. I could always make things happen. And when it felt like everything, like I was losing my grip on everything, it was the lowest I've ever been. Like I had never entertained thoughts of ending my life until that moment of like, it got so dark, I didn't know my way out. Luckily, I think it was some kind of spiritual intervention. Um, it wasn't like I heard angels or anything. It was more I had the thought of if I created all of this, then maybe I can create something different. I actually had like a fleeting moment thought of realizing the difference between being a victim of like all this is happening to me and I just suck at life or a seeker and being curious and I had been seeing a life coach, but I wasn't really listening to what she was saying. And I just decided to go all in. Like I started seeing her twice a week. I devoured every personal growth book I could get my hands on. And I just started to learn. I started to learn more about myself, like not just from a psychological point of view, because I'd been seeing therapists for years, but more from like a spiritual psychology point of view, like more from the viewpoint of, why did I choose these life lessons? Like, what is this really here to teach me? And I started to become way more empowered about my health. You know, I had been told at 11 years old, you have a chemical imbalance and you're going to need these for the rest of your life. And that was really what I believed and what we believe we create. So I really thought there was no way I was ever getting off medication, but I started to learn more about the mind-body connection. I finally had a coach who believed I could. I finally had a deeper spiritual connection. So I felt like I had more rooting and grounding. And this was a, this was a journey, you know, it took me a good four years to get off medication, to start my new career. Cause while this was happening, I was looking for a book that could help me. And there wasn't one, there was a book called the quarter life crisis, which was a great book, but it was all about the things I did, how to find a career relationship, all that kind of stuff. I was like, where's the book about like What's going on on the emotional level? Like, how do I process that? So I wrote my first book, 20 something, 20 everything that came out and people just started asking me to coach them. And that's how the whole thing started. What a remarkable story because knowing you um, as, as I do now, you're such a, a different person. I mean, are you on any medication now? No. None at all. No. 
Well, a truckload of supplements, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here, here, sister. <laughs> Tell me about your digestive health when you were growing mm. up. Oh goodness. Well, I, I thought I had a sensitive stomach. <laughs> I had a sensitive heart. And I, oh, it even gets me teary thinking about it. I just remember as a little girl, if my parents would fight or if I was in a tense situation or even if I saw a scary movie or anything, mostly it was around my family. Like if I, I could feel it and I'd get sick. I'd get sick. It was IBS straight. It's straight up IBS. That's what would happen to me. And I can even remember being on a school trip in eighth grade. And I was already self-conscious enough, you know, because I was a super late bloomer and I felt very awkward and I wasn't used to being away from my family a lot. And I remember we were like, I don't know, we were touring George Washington's home or something and my stomach got so upset. And I just remember like run, like barely making it to the bathroom, you know, as just a kid, like eighth grade, like, and I can remember a lot of circumstances like that of really just feeling like... I couldn't trust my stomach. Like I never knew it was going to happen. And I just really expected to get sick. Like I probably got sick. I want to say once a week, my mom would probably say it wasn't that much, but I remember getting sick a lot. It was just a common thing. What came first? Like the mood stuff or the stomach stuff? They kind of came together. The headaches and stomach stuff. And then I think the depression was a result of that. There were also other things going on in my life that my parents didn't even know about. There was some trauma with the neighbors. And I was keeping a lot inside, like a lot inside. And it just was like weighing me down. So I think that that the headaches and the stomach aches were the first thing that started to come up. I also really feel like I had a pretty bad gluten sensitivity as a kid. And, you know, no one knew that in the late eighties, early nineties, like it wasn't really a thing. And I think the food that I was eating, I was eating a lot of dairy. Like I'd have ice cream at night. I'd eat gluten during the day. So I think I was eating a lot of processed foods and that wasn't helping things either. I think the food allergies push things over the edge, but the emotional issues and the sensitivity and being a highly empathic, sensitive child, that was really the thing that um, was hardest for my body. What was the moment when you realized that you could change your gut health, mm. that it was within your control? There were a series of moments. I decoded the food thing in my late teens. For some reason, I got involved in like a multi-level marketing supplement company. And I always had this interest for health. I don't know what got me on it. I think it was like an intuitive thing. And I started getting curious about supplements and health. And I started to learn about wheat allergies and gluten allergies. And I remember even in college, I had my own little hot plate so I could cook more of my own food. And so when I started to get myself off processed foods and glutens in my late teens in college, which is very rare. And it was kind of hit or miss in college because as a freshman in college, I was drinking beer and having Burger King late at night and would see that my stomach would be upset. So that was the first major dot I connected was eating healthier really helps my stomach a lot. And then the second aha moment for me was after I met my first coach, Mona, and started doing emotional release work. So started doing more cathartic work, more emotional release work where, you know, it's hitting a pillow and screaming, but not just random screaming, like intentional, I'm angry because I'm upset because I'm sad because having a new relationship to my emotions, allowing myself to have a good cry without judging it. Like knowing that when I felt tension in my stomach, that was going to affect my digestion. And so finding ways to release anxiety, anger, and sadness from myself physically really, really helped my digestion a lot. And then the third level was just, you know, two years ago when I realized that a lot of other symptoms I was having in my life, getting sick more often than usual, being bloaty and gassy, just things like just not having IBS, but just not feeling like I was right digestive wise. That's when I really learned that I could like rebuild my gut. And I learned that I had SIBO and I went through a whole gut rebuild process. And so that was kind of the last layer. So the first level is really identifying the food allergies and supplementing and being more conscious about what I ate and put in my body. The second level, which really moved the needle the most was the emotional connection. And then the third was knowing that, I mean, 
geez, just being on antidepressants from 11 to 30, like that's a lot for the gut. Add Excedrin every day, prescription medication, tons of Advil, antibiotics. I mean, my gut really had, you know, a lot to clean up. So the, the third level was just being like, okay, like, thank you gut for hanging on this long. And let me see if I can rebuild you and repair you a bit. So people make the connection between stress and gut, I think pretty easily. Mm -hmm. I'm stressed. I can feel it in my gut. What does it mean for having that emotional connection? Yeah. So to me, the emotional connection is literally when we swallow our feelings. So a lot of people will say feelings are a response to a thought. I don't know that that's entirely true. Maybe feelings are like anxiety is definitely a response to a thought of something we can't control or something in the future. Guilt's definitely a response to a thought of self-judgment. But a lot of things like shame, sadness, anger, I feel like those are emotions. That's energy in motion. There are some things that I think happen in life where the physiological response is fear or shame or anger. I don't know that that's always created by a thought. I think that we get scared. It triggers the fight or flight system in our brain. And we feel these really powerful emotions. And as kids, as adults, we don't always feel safe to express them because we have to keep something a secret or because we have to be good or because we try to express them, but we're ashamed for them or because someone else is uncomfortable with our emotions. So they oversoothe us. It's one thing I tell parents, like, don't, over-soothe your children. Like when they get upset, like let them ride out a temper tantrum, make a little space for them and let them ride the wave of the emotion. Because if emotion is suppressed, energy in motion, right? Where does that energy go? It's like we hold it into our body. And so much of that happens in our gut because literally we're, we're tr- like, we're swallowing our feelings and, you know, our digestion is our main processor. It's where everything goes through. And so if emotion, energy and motion isn't coming up and out, where's that energy going? It's going to all different places in our body. And I think most physical things have an emotional component. It's not just something I think it's been proved by science and research over and over and over again, but so much of it goes to the gut because it's like, it's so big, you know, there's, and it's responsible for so much. And I think because if we think energetically and we think in terms of chakras, it's also our third chakra, which is our power center. And when we don't express our emotions, when we aren't speaking our truth, when we feel suppressed or repressed in any way, we do feel disempowered. And so I think it eats us up inside. So these expressions, it's eating me up inside, I'm swallowing my feelings, like there, there's, there's information in those expressions. Isn't it interesting? Like one of the oldest sayings, you know, I've just got a gut feeling about yes. that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Our gut is so smart. It's so smart. And we, and that's the other thing I think that is a way that we, you know, cause tension in our gut is when we go against our intuition. So let's say somebody like they've done the diet, they've done the herbs, like they've, they've done the physical healing. Where do they need to look to next to make sure that they're covering that emotional aspect of it? Well, looking to your past and looking to the traumatic or challenging events that you got through, but never got over. And what I mean by that is you're alive, you got through them, you know, maybe you were abandoned by a parent, but you're in a good marriage now. So you think I'm good. My abandonment issues are over, but you've never really grieved that. Like you've never really felt your feelings about that. It may be time to go back. And, and this is where I think working with a skilled therapist, practitioner, even a coach who has training in psychology, a somatic therapist, EMDR, finding a I like to call it a technician, you know, finding someone that can help you go back to those scary places because why we're so afraid to go back to trauma or challenging times is because we remember how hard it was. I remember how awful it felt and we don't want to re-experience it again. However, the truth is we're re-experiencing it every day by holding those emotions in. So I'm always of the mindset that you might as well temporarily have the discomfort of going back there for the sake of processing and releasing it rather than carry it around literally in your body, specifically your gut for the rest of your life. So 
Tell me, how do emotions cause stress in the physical body? Well, they can do it in a variety of ways, and it depends on how people relate to their emotions. So a lot of times emotions can feel very overwhelming to people. And so their response is, I just got to be busy, 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 busy. And so that's just going to wear down the body. It's going to make you less mindful of what you eat and it's going to create stress on the body that way. Um, other people that emotions are just too big, they may go for a numbing device. So it might be pills or eating, emotional eating or drinking or whatever it may may be to kind of like numb, 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 numb. And for some people, it's just like, I don't want to feel anything. I'm just going to shut down. I'm just going to become very cerebral, very in my head, disconnect from my body. Because when we don't want to feel our emotions, we can't feel our body because our emotions exist in our body. So when we disconnect from the physical, then we can disconnect from the emotions as well. And a lot of times people will be so disconnected from their body that they don't even know their gut is off because they're completely disconnected from it because they just don't want to feel anything. And then that is dangerous because if you're disconnected from your physical body, then you're not getting the feedback from it that you need. So tell me a little bit more about how emotions exist in the physical body. Cause I know for a lot of people, they think it's in their head, mm-hmm. you know, and that everything sort of occurs from the chin up, I guess, mm-hmm. in that zone. Mm-hmm. Tell me how that shows up. So I'll share a personal example and then we can kind of go more broad. So my headaches that I mentioned, the reason the headaches existed is because I had a lot of repressed anger. So as soon as I got a lot of anger and rage out of my body, I expressed it and moved it. I stopped waking up with headaches. And so that's an example of how like that anger, that energy of anger was literally creating a headache in my body. Grief for me shows up as constriction in my chest, right? So that constriction in my chest, it feels tight. I might get more throat kind of problems. I might get more even indigestion because my esophagus and like that doorway down to my stomach is influenced by it. A lot of anxiety and shame, that's, that's a lot of gut. It lived in the gut as tension, as IBS, as those kinds of things. And a lot of times if we have trauma, like physical trauma, like any kind of abuse, especially sexual abuse, physical abuse, that trauma like literally gets stuck in the body, like in the cells. And so we're not just carrying it around mentally as a memory. Our body is actually holding onto it physically. It's almost like, think of it like a bruise. You know, like if I punched you in the arm, you'd have, even though the punch is over, the mark would be there until the body healed itself. And that's how it is with trauma. Like, something happens and it could just be something someone says to you. It's like it lands on you. The body feels it. The body absorbs it. And until we actually move that energy and that emotion out, it's like hanging on to the body. It's not just in the mind. So this I think is a really important conversation when we're looking at everything around gut health, because, you know, we talk about the microbiome and indigestion and food intolerance and allergy and all of that. But what I find is for anybody that's had a chronic health problem, like with their gut specifically, they need to look at their emotional stuff because not only a is can it be caused and contributed to emotions but also when there's food sensitivity you create this whole another layer of emotion around food and around around nourishment etc can you tell me a little bit about how people so say for instance they have digestive symptoms they eat a certain food or they're not sure they're reacting to things and how would they create emotion around that and how can that actually make things worse oh gosh i've seen this so often i've seen it with myself and i've seen it with a lot of people that i work with because okay so you know once you have a food allergy it's great in the sense that like you have an answer but it's also it, it can land in the in the psyche in a twisted way because all of a sudden your body becomes your adversary versus your ally. There's this, oh, my body like can't handle this and I can't do this and I do one thing wrong and my body reacts. So instead of like loving our body and communicating with our body, we see this body as this uncontrollable, unpredictable thing that's going to react and cause us pain if we do one thing wrong. And so many of us are so hard on ourselves anyway, like the, our, our self-critic is, is nasty a lot of the time. So if we like have a food allergy, we go out to dinner, we don't realize there was gluten in the sauce, we get sick, 
usually the reaction is an, oh, body, thank you so much for letting me know. Like, it's okay. We're going to breathe through this and we're going to be fine. It's like, no, oh, what are you? I can't believe I'm sick. I can't believe I did that. That's it. And we go into more tension. So the body has this reaction. The body sounds an alarm. And instead of responding to it with compassion, which is a high frequency emotion and which is a healing emotion, we react to it with fear and judgment and self-criticism and maybe a little anger, which is a very lower vibration emotion, which is a contracting emotion, which basically makes the gut even tenser. It makes it harder for the gut to heal. Tell me a bit more about the self-critic. Oh, that inner critic. (laughs) It's formed early on when we realize, like when we believe we did something wrong, when we're either externally criticized or we get in trouble And we sort of make an inner decision that we need to be a little harder on ourselves to protect ourselves. And so it often happens because if we're harder on ourselves, let me repeat that, it often happens because we kind of form a misbelief that if we're harder on ourselves than anyone else can be, it won't hurt as much when other people are hard on us. And it gives us a false sense of control. And it's how many of us motivate ourselves. I mean, so many people motivate themselves to diet or exercise by being hard on themselves. I want to lose this weight. I look awful. You know, I'm lazy. Most people don't diet and exercise because they're like, I love my body and I just want to enjoy it more. Often the come from is a very, is from that very critical place. And so the inner critic gets a lot of stage time in our consciousness because it's effective or we have the illusion that it's effective because it makes us get things done and we think it protects us. So it's very hard oftentimes to turn down the volume of that inner critic because it's something we rely on so, so much. And because we've allowed circumstances in our life, like someone telling us we're not enough or someone rejecting us or losing a job or not making a team or mom and dad getting divorced, we take so much personally that has nothing to do with us. And the minute we take something personally, the inner critic gets more fuel for the car. It gets more ammunition of like, oh, see, you got rejected or that person said something bad. So like, we're right. All this negative stuff we believe about ourselves is right. And it's it's pervasive. I mean, I've, I've worked with thousands of people and the one common thread that I've seen with everyone is people are just really, really hard on themselves. Really, really hard on themselves. And so that that inner critic is a real liability in the healing process. So why are people so hard on themselves, like more than they would ever be to anybody else? Well, like I said, people are harder on themselves because they think it's protecting them. They think it's protecting them from harder. Like if I'm super hard on me, Catherine, then if you say something nasty to me, I can one up it internally. So you're not as dangerous if I can be even more ruthless on myself. It also comes from just a lack of confidence, like all those things happening, taking things personally. You know, in life, there's what happens and there's what we make it mean. And what we make it mean has far greater impact than anything that happened. So two people could go through, let's just use a breakup, for example. Two people could go through a breakup. One person could make it mean it wasn't a fit. We weren't at the same place. It wasn't a fit. The other person may know that consciously, but may also make it mean I wasn't enough. I'm never going to find anyone. Why didn't that person show up for me? Okay. So the the second person is going to have a much harder time healing and moving on from that relationship because their inner critic is really running the show. And so they're taking a lot more personally. Yeah, absolutely. So... Tell me, like, how do emotions cause internal stress? Emotions cause internal stress because they are energy in motion. Imagine being in a swimming pool and holding a big inflated beach ball and trying to hold that beach ball underwater. It takes a lot of energy and eventually the beach ball wins and it splashes up and you can't really contain it. That's what holding emotions inside the body is like. It takes a lot of energy. It carries a lot of weight. So many people that have trouble releasing weight and they do all the diets, they get their hormones checked, they do all the exercise and they're not letting go. It's because it's emotional. They haven't released the emotional weight and the emotional weight is seriously weighing them down physically and energetically. How do people begin to realize that this is what's happening for them? Unfortunately, they get sick usually. 
Usually what makes people realize that they need to look at their emotions is because they've tried the physical things, they've tried the supplements, they've tried the meditations, they've tried the exercise program, they've tried a juice cleanse, and maybe they're moving the needle a bit, but they're really not, they don't feel free of the physical pain, the depression, the weight, the the IBS, whatever it may be, the gut issues. And so eventually they get to a point where either they have the awareness themselves or someone comes along like this interview series and says, hey, maybe you need to look at what's happened to you in your life and the emotions that you've been carrying around that you haven't really looked at. You know, maybe you need to look at the fact that your whole life you've never felt accepted, or maybe you need to look at the fact that your dad left the family at seven and you had to become an adult then, and you never got to like express how that felt. Or maybe you need to look at the fact that at 12 years old, you were sexually abused and you just, you got through that, but you've never, ever had an opportunity to release the shame and the anger about that. So tell me a little bit more about emotional eating. You mentioned, you touched on this a little bit with looking at like how people are suppressing stuff. What's the story with emotional eating? Oh gosh, emotional eating. This is such a big one. So all of us are, all of us are sensitive. Like me telling my story as a kid, like all little kitties are sensitive. You know, we just, we're born with these big open hearts and, We know that we're just pure love and then things happen and we forget. And we, we start really suppressing who we are. And for so many of us, we didn't get a lot of soothing as a kid or we didn't get a lot of nurturing or we didn't get a lot of pleasure. And so the easiest replacement for that is food. And so many of us grew up whenever something bad or good happened, food was there. Whenever there's a holiday, food was there because so many people are so shut down and looking for distraction, food has become the most common way we distract and numb ourselves. So when we feel a big emotion, we're both taught that food will soothe it. And whenever we're feeling a big emotion, we are looking for soothing, right? We're looking for soothing and we're looking for a shift in it. So we're looking for pleasure. I really learned this when I um, started doing somatic emotional release work at my retreats with people there, but first I did it for myself. And I learned that when the body's feeling a big emotion, it needs to come out, it needs to be expressed and soothed and like allowed. And then the body needs pleasure. Like it needs like to be hugged or it needs like to stroke on the arm or you need a little stuffed animal you can cuddle up with or someone to stroke your hair. Same thing. Like if you imagine a little kid after a temper tantrum, they go all the way through it and then they need like a hug. They need a little nurturing. So when we're not doing that and we're just suppressing our emotion, food kind of does the job. It soothes us because it distracts us and it, it gives us like a moment of relief and it gives us some, some kind of pleasure. If somebody has an emotion that's trying to come up, what is the result of them then having the sugar or the alcohol or these suppressants? What will happen? Oh, a variety of things will happen. One, the emotion will get farther suppressed. It will get farther and farther suppressed. And two, well, obviously we know it's not good for your gut to have sugar and alcohol and processed foods and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to throw off your digestion, which is going to throw off your brain chemistry, which is going to affect your serotonin. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me that when people have a hard day, they have alcohol because alcohol is a depressant. So it just messes up your serotonin levels and it's going to make you feel more depressed and more foggy the next day. So drinking alcohol to feel good is just the wrong direction to go because it's just going to make you feel worse. And this is the most dangerous thing. If I'm using food, alcohol, sugar to treat my emotions, I have to keep upping the ante. It's not like one glass of wine is going to work for a year. If I'm drinking one glass of wine to suppress, I'm going to need two glasses of wine the next week and then three and then a bottle. And then all of a sudden I haven't, I'm an addict. So this is the danger of not dealing with our feelings is the coping devices and the numbing devices that we need to suppress become larger and larger and larger. And before we know it, either our health is is really down in the dumps or we have an addiction. 
Yeah. And I'm sure that like a lot of people hearing this would be like, oh yeah, that's my story. And we've all been there. I've been there certainly before. It can be our go-to where the stuff's coming up and we just want to kind of hide it and hide it and suppress it for sure. What's been one of the biggest shifts that you've made in your life? I mean, I think the biggest shift that I have made is moving from holding my emotions in and thinking my way through life to feeling my way through life. I've always been intelligent. I've always been analytical. My dad's a CPA, so I've always just been able to process things in my head. And I always thought I could just think my way through through things and analyze things. And, and, you know, even as a kid going to psychologists and psychiatrists, like I could psychoanalyze myself just fine, but nothing was really changing and how I felt. So I had to move from figuring things out with my mind to actually feeling things and allowing the feelings to lead me to the answers and allowing my body to become more of a messenger to me and become more of a seeker and to become more curious. And that's been the biggest shift for me is from that that human doing to more of a human being. And it's still a work in process. You know, I'm, I qu- quickly default to the mind a lot of the times. And so a big part of my life is getting in my body. So breath work, yoga, walks in nature, meditation, dancing, things that get me more connected to my body and out of my head. What's something that's really bugging you right now? Uh, I wouldn't say it's bugging me more as concerning me is the tension between men and women on the planet right now. I feel like there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. I think it's beautiful that so many men and women, mostly women are speaking up about sexual abuse and um, harassment and all these kinds of things. Um, and that's that's creating a lot of freedom in a lot of ways. People are speaking their truth, but it's also creating a lot of againstness and and resentment. And so one thing I'm, another thing I'm passionate about is just not just helping women really step into their feminine power, but really understanding what healthy masculine looks like in the world today. Because we've said, oh, we're living in the masculine paradigm, but we've been living in the shadow of the masculine, not the healthy masculine. So just the division that's happening in the world, you know, living in America, it's a very divided country right now. And I understand that sometimes things have to get, and I see this with people that I coach, like things have to get bad. Most people don't come to me and say, oh, my life's great. I thought we'd just have a chat. Most people come to me because they've had what I call a massive expectation hangover and they want to change it. And so I know that all this kind of tension and angst that's happening is for a reason because we're, we're growing we're in consciousness, right? But as a sensitive person, it, it hurts my heart to see, you know, blame and, and anger and um, a lot of disconnect. Tell me about the book, Expectation Hangover. Yeah. So this book I wrote after my divorce, I would made up the term expectation hangover and I'll define it for you. So it's when one of three things happens, either life doesn't go according to plan. You don't get that great job or the business launch isn't successful or, you know, you you do a new diet nutrition program. It doesn't work. Or life does go according to plan. You don't feel like you thought you would. Like you finally get that great job, but you don't feel happy. You finally are in the relationship, but you don't feel confident. Like or life just throws you an unexpected curveball, get broken up with, get diagnosed with an illness, so on and so forth. And most people, when an expectation hangover happens, because there's big feelings that come with them, again, want to just get through it. Like don't want to deal with it. Just want to like be done. And so they distract, they numb, they avoid, but then people just have the same expectation hangover over and over and over again. You know, generally people that have trouble with money have trouble with money over and over and over again. People have trouble with relationships have relationship trouble over and over and over again. Like, and so the book is to help you take a current expectation hangover or disappointment and leverage it to really go, okay, how do I heal this and transform it emotionally, mentally, behavior, and spiritually so that I stop having the same disappointment over and over and over again. Because any disappointment is to me a doorway to healing. Because whatever disappointment you're having right now, there's a thread to disappointment from your past that you've never really dealt with. And I wrote the book because I was a little frustrated with 
all the quick fix books in the personal growth industry. It was like, just do this one thing and you'll be healed forever. And I'm like, after doing this for years and years, both personally and professionally, I'm like, it's a little more complicated than that. Like you need to be a little more thorough. And the book starts with dealing with the emotions because that's the one people want to skip over most. People just want to think their way out of pain and you can't, you've got to feel your way out of it. And then it takes you into how to change your brain, like how to actually rewire it, how to change your behavior. So you're moving, you're behaving from more conscious versus unconscious place, and then how to have more of a spiritual connection. So you live your life more of a seeker than a victim. Awesome. And it's a fantastic book. So congratulations. And I love that concept of an expectation hangover because it's like, if we didn't expect it to turn out a certain way, then we wouldn't be disappointed. If we weren't disappointed, then we wouldn't be stressed, you know, it's, and that kind of plays into that whole cycle. So I think that's really fantastic. I have one last question for you. If you could give people one piece of advice, if they wanted to make a shift in their health and their life, what would that be? Look at your self-critic. Because that really, if, if your inner critic is still the loudest voice in your head, making any kind of shift is going to be challenging. So start with your relationship with yourself. Really ask yourself, if I talk to my friends, like I talk to myself, would I have any friends? And start to change that dialogue. Tell your inner critic, you're going to give it a promotion and it's going to be your inner coach. Because too many people try to get rid of their inner critic and that's hard to do or they just criticize their inner critic. And then it's even worse because you're criticizing your inner critic. So you give your inner critic a promotion. And you, when your inner critic comes up, like if after this interview, my inner critic is like, oh, Christine, like you could have said that differently, or that was a really stupid thing to say or whatever. I would say, oh, thank you, inner critic. I know you're here because you think you're making me better, but how about you put on your inner coach hat? And I'll be like, okay, okay. Hmm. All right. Well, let's look at really what went well. And let's look at like, if there's anything that we want to learn for the next interview and let's first like just acknowledge ourselves for doing well. It's a different way of talking to ourselves. And so that to me is foundational because I work with so many people and if they can try all the different tools and skills in the world, but if they're just ruthless with themselves and they don't acknowledge any progress at all, and they look for any opportunity to be hard on themselves then any kind of healing work just, it, it kind of negates it. It's like red light, green light. You know, you, you take one step forward, but then the inner critic comes in and says, it's not good enough. And like you erase everything that you just did. 